This is Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher, where Kevin and his guests dig a little deeper into today's issues surrounding the environment, farming, gardening, and food. My guest today on Digging in the Dirt is Professor Naomi Oreskes, who, along with her colleague Eric Conway, are best-selling authors of the book Merchants of Doubt about the machinations of the fossil fuel industry. And now they have a new tome called The Big Myth, which is a startling history of one of America's most tenacious and destructive false ideas, they say, the myth of free market. Welcome, Ms. Oreskes. So the big myth touches on a wide range of issues from climate change to COVID-19 and how the so-called free markets affect all of this. What do you hope readers will take away from your analysis of these topics? Well, what we're really hoping to do, I think, here is to start a conversation because the ideology of the free market, the magic of the marketplace has been so dominant in the last 40 years or so, it's been really hard to talk about solutions to many of these potential problems because almost all of these problems are market failures and almost all of them require some kind of government action, maybe on the federal level, maybe on the state or local level, but some kind of governance to try to address the problem. And it's been really hard to have that conversation in America Because so many of us, uh, particularly conservatives, but not only, have been persuaded that government doesn't work, uh, that government programs are costly failures, uh, that big government is the problem, not the solution, as Ronald Reagan put it. And so we're not saying government's the solution to everything, uh, and the kinds of government actions that are needed to address these diverse problems are themselves diverse. It's not a one-size-fit-all argument. But what we do think we need is to have a conversation. Um, And I actually feel pretty good that the time is right for that conversation because I just, a few minutes ago, read a piece in the Washington Post by Mitch Daniels, the former Republican governor of Indiana, basically saying we need to regulate social media. And... uh, and it's a very strong piece basically saying that this giant problem is in front of our eyes and we're doing nothing about it. Well, part of the reason we've been doing nothing about it is because Republicans in this country have been unwilling even to talk about regulating social media. But I think that's starting to change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not just social media. Your book points out, for better or worse, that the marketplace under neoliberalism has a great effect on labor unions, workplace safety, obesity, the fight on COVID, opioids, gun violence, and even chemical pollution. I mean, all of it. So in the book, you're, you're laying the blame at the market fundamentalism. Why don't you explain to everybody what you're talking about there? Sure. Well, it's really important for us um, to distinguish between capitalism writ large, which is a very big word that has referred to a lot of different things uh, since Adam Smith first wrote The Wealth of Nations in 1776, to a particular kind of capitalism that we've been operating under in the last 40 years or so. And it's a very unregulated capitalism, a kind of capitalism where we've been persuaded to just trust markets. And so market fundamentalism essentially You could also call it market essentialism or market absolutism. It's the idea that you you can really trust markets. Uh, It's the idea that there even is such a thing as a free market that stands apart from society as a whole and that it has a kind of wisdom, a a kind of efficiency, a kind of organization. So if we just leave it alone, leave the market alone, then things will be good, things will work out, and the government just needs to get out of the way. And so what we show in the book is, first of all, that that's just false as a matter of fact, that the history of capitalism has been a repeated history of 
serious failures, serious social costs that have been remedied by various forms of governance. Uh, but a group of business conservatives starting in the early 20th century started to construct this myth as a way of fighting back against government regulation, fighting back about, against unions, fighting back against consumer protection. And so we really want to expose the myth so people can realize, oh, yeah, that's actually not true. Markets are tools. We have to figure out how we want them to work. And when they're not working the way we want them to work, then we have to do something to fix it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you're talking, uh, I mean, you're, this book is also like a history book because a lot of the history, I wasn't familiar with how pervasive certain groups were like the National Association of Manufacturers. That became readily apparent reading many chapters of your book. I mean, uh, let's uh, something from your book is the National Association of Manufacturers allowed that the word socialistic was sometimes used too loosely, but then proceeded to do just that, painting nearly all those who advocated against child labor as socialist sympathizers or worse and using the term socialisms interchangeably with communism and i think it's even coming out now that Ginny thomas the wife of the supreme court justice says that she's leading the fight against cultural marxism and i, I what do you have to say about all this stuff because i don't think your book is anti-capitalist it's anti-unregulated capitalism exactly that's exactly right we're anti-unregulated capitalism and we're anti propaganda and we're anti-lying. So many reasonable people of various political persuasions supported reforms in the early 20th century to address the social costs of capitalism. And as you say, this work book is a work of history. Eric Conway and I are both historians. That's how we earn our living. Um, that's our day job. Because we feel really strongly that in order to understand where we are today and the challenges that we face, it's really hard to do that if you don't understand how we got here in the first place. And Ginny Thomas is a great example. I mean, what does it even mean to be a cultural Marxist? That's just an invented term, but it's consistent with the story we tell in this book of how the right wing has constantly tried to demonize reformers and to shut down the conversation, to shut down the social conversation by accusing reformers of being Marxists or being communists or being socialists. So it's a kind of red baiting and as we show in the book, and as I started to say a moment ago, if you look at the reformers who supported something like workman's compensation in the early 20th century, today we take it for granted that if a worker is injured or, God forbid, killed on the job, that that person deserves compensation, uh, disability insurance, or survivor's benefits for the family. But that wasn't always true. And in the early 20th century, huge numbers of workers were killed every year in the mining industry, in the railroad industry, in factories across this country. Labor was incredibly dangerous. It was so dangerous that there was a problem recognized at the time. It was called the accident crisis. And because it was so widespread and so detrimental, people across a wide range of political orientations started to talk about what should be done about it. And a group of industrialists even traveled to Europe to try to figure out why accident rates were so much lower in Europe, even in countries like Germany and the United Kingdom that were just as industrialized as we were. And the answer was workman's compensation, that they had programs that were insurance programs that if a worker got hurt or killed on the job, that worker or their family would receive compensation. And it was paid through an insurance fund. And like most insurance, your premiums were higher if you were judged to be a, a bigger risk. So it created a positive incentive for factory owners to clean up their workplaces. And so the injury rates fell. The people who supported that were very diverse. They included progressive Republicans like Teddy Roosevelt, 
They included some captains of industry like Andrew Carnegie. And for the vast majority of them, they were not communists. There were people actually trying to remedy a failure of capitalism, but they got accused of being communist Marxists, just the same way Ginny Thomas is throwing those kinds of accusations around today. And as I've said, part of what that serves to do is to shut down the conversation, to say, no, we can't talk about that because those people are Marxists, when in reality, those people are loyal Americans who care about their fellow American citizens. Right. And is taken another step further with the former president, whose name we shall not mention, um, where he's now calling everybody that uh, that's carrying out the legal process against them, socialists and left-wing communist conspiracy to harass them for no reason. It's like, right. I mean, right. it's just another extension of the same thing, don't you think? Absolutely. It also, it's, I think, to me, it seems like it's socialism for some and not for others. You know, it's, they like big government when there's a government bailout of the banks, for instance. Do you have anything to think about that? Yeah, exactly. So one of the things that anyone who reads the book will see is this just tremendous dishonesty and also hypocrisy behind these arguments. They're dishonest because they misrepresent American history. And so in the book, we have sections where we talk about how these arguments really misrepresent the history of the United States, particularly the fact that there's actually, there was a long, a long history of the federal government and also state governments being very involved in the economies of the United States in the 19th century. So there's a lot of dishonesty about these arguments, and there's also a lot of hypocrisy. So they're saying that the government shouldn't be involved in the marketplace until they need the government. And we saw that very clearly during the savings and loan crises of the 80s and 90s. And we're seeing it again today with the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. Mm -hmm. My favorite uh, dishonesty or hypocrisy of the story, though, involves our chapter on General Electric. So the General Electric Corporation is a really important part of the story, in part because of its influence on Ronald Reagan. Right. It's amazing. A story that most Reagan biographers ignore because it doesn't fit their hagiography. But Reagan had been a Democrat uh, for most of his life until he went to work for General Electric. And he comes out of General Electric politically transformed into the Ronald Reagan that we all know, anti-government, uh, anti-union, etc. So this happened while he worked as a spokesman for the company and began to promote the company's views of uh, very hostile to unionization and very hostile to government regulation. Uh, particularly regulation of electricity markets. And electricity markets are this sort of geeky thing that we, we get into a lot in the book because it's actually really important for the understanding of this history. But while they are fighting against government regulation of electricity markets, they are in fact conspiring with Westinghouse and other leading electrical manufacturers and electrical generating companies to rig electricity markets. And they're actually prosecuted for this um, in the 1960s, they were, the prosecution was actually led by uh, Bobby Kennedy, Robert F. Kennedy, when he was Attorney General of the United States. So they're touting free markets in public, and they're conspiring to rig markets in private. Yeah, I found it fascinating. I didn't realize that in Europe, it's a sort of a right to have electricity. And over here, they wanted to make sure you paid for electricity, and the rural markets were not very lucrative, so they didn't provide it. Exactly. And so this is one of the important stories we tell in the book of an early example of market failure. So electricity is developed in Europe as a kind of public good, and governments are very involved in most countries in making sure that everybody gets it. But that's not the case in the United States. In the United States, it's developed mostly as a private sector activity, 
and the private sector led by uh, Edison Electric, Westinghouse and other private companies that are you know, very famous names in American history didn't supply electricity to rural areas um, because it wasn't profitable enough for them. And they even say it, we have this great quotation from a GE executive where he says, yeah, they're just, farmers aren't rich enough to be in the consumer class. Wow. And so, yeah, I know, it's so, it's so heartless, it's so cold, it's just very, very cold. Um, so a group of reformers say, well, okay, if the private sector can't or won't provide electricity to rural customers, then the government could. And so under Gifford Pinchot, the progressive Republican governor of Pennsylvania, they propose a plan uh, in Pennsylvania to bring, bring rural electricity to all Pennsylvanians. And they are roundly attacked by a trade group called the National Electric Light Association. And NILA, the National Electric Light Association, launches a massive propaganda campaign. But it's not just to say, oh, the electricity industry is great. That would be normal public relations. What makes it propaganda is they actually begin to rewrite textbooks to give money to universities to change the way universities teach business and economics to promote free market ideology, to say that, no, the free market can solve all our problems. You don't need government. And worse, if you allow the government to become involved in electricity markets, then you're on the road to Soviet-style totalitarianism. And so that's the argument then that we follow through the rest of the book and which Ronald Reagan brings to the White House in the 1980s, this idea that government involvement in the marketplace, what they like to call encroachment, is a threat to our personal freedom and liberty. Right. We should remind everybody that Reagan came up with the most terrifying words in the English language, that I'm from the government and I'm here to help, unless you, perhaps, he could have added, uh, you're a bank or a business that needs a bailout, in my opinion. <laughs> exactly, right, little asterisk, right? <laughs> Yeah, you're pretty tough on Reagan in the book, and GE, and the National Association of Manufacturers. It's really a fascinating history. and But you're also tough on Clinton, you know, it's equal opportunity, or you, there's not a, a delineation between Democrats and Republicans, it's sort of like uh, for this free marketers, right? Yeah, I mean, we're trying to tell the story and to understand how this damaging ideology became wise, so widespread, and a key part of that is understanding how it influenced Democrats as well. And so a really important part of the story has to do with um, the so-called Reagan revolution. And one of the things we say in the book, this was a line Eric Conway came up with, was that the Reagan revolution really started with Jimmy Carter and it was completed by Bill Clinton. So in the 1970s, there were some real problems in the American economy, what people who were alive then remember as stagflation. We had both inflation and a stagnant economy with high unemployment. And according to classic Keynesian economic theory, that wasn't supposed to happen. Either you had inflation or you had high unemployment, but you didn't generally have both. People saw it as a trade-off. And we're seeing this right now with the Fed, you know, desperately trying to get inflation under control with these repeated small adjustments to the prime uh, interest rate, but not wanting to do it too much, lest they trigger a recession and more unemployment. But in the 70s, conventional wisdom was challenged by the emergence of stagflation. And so a lot of people were trying to figure out what to do. And so these conservative, ideologically oriented business people came forward and said, oh, we have the answer. The answer is that the country is overregulated and you need to deregulate markets. And so Jimmy Carter says, yeah, well, there might be some truth in that. And, and in the book, we agree. We think there was some truth in that. Often the way myths work is you take a kernel of truth, but then you blow it up 
way beyond what is in fact true. So there were some industries like trucking and aviation and also natural gas for which there were pretty strong arguments for the need to deregulate those markets. And Carter did that with mixed results. But what Reagan does, and this is where the bit of truth then gets turned into a lie, he begins to use the word regulation to to apply to two actually very different things. One is regulated markets like trucking, but the other are laws and statutes that protect workers and the environment like the Clean Air Act or the Clean Water Act. But Reagan uses the word regulation to apply to both of those things. And, it, and he's so successful about this that it works. When, we, when, you, when you hear the word regulation, lots and lots of Americans think, oh, environmental protection or worker protection. Um, and they don't really necessarily think, you know, trucking. Right. right. I think most people think of environmental regulation. So Reagan starts to try to undo a lot of the protections that were put into place in the 1920s and 30s and 40s. Uh, to protect workers, uh, and then a lot, and unions to protect unions, the right to collective bargaining, but also environmental statutes. Now he doesn't have the political support to to undo the environmental statutes, so he just orders the EPA not to enforce them. And again, this is something we've seen in recent years. So maybe some of your listeners have been reading about how Republicans across this country are trying to weaken the protection for child labor. Yeah. Some even repeal laws that were passed in the 1930s to protect children uh, from the hazards of the workplace. But what we're learning is that in many of these states, even though these laws have been on the books since the 1920s and 30s, in many of these states in the last few decades, they haven't been enforced. So non-enforcement has become a very powerful and rather pernicious tool because often it's a bit invisible. We don't realize this is happening. Anyway, Reagan normalizes deregulation to mean both of these things. And sadly, Bill Clinton and many of the Democrats around Clinton buy into particularly the first part of it, not the environmental retreat, but but the deregulation of markets. And so in the book, we argue that Clinton pursues this and takes it way, way too far. So he deregulates telecommunications with really serious consequences for media consolidation, including you know what we've seen recently in social media. And he also deregulates finance in ways that many, many economists believe led directly to the 2008 crisis um, and set the stage for the weakening of bank regulation that led to the events of recent weeks with Silicon Valley Bank as well. Industry, and look what we got from that. Exactly. And so what we've seen is that really since the Reagan years, both Democrats and Republicans, and even diverse Republicans, because Donald Trump, oops, sorry, I wasn't supposed to his name, say, is the man with orange head, now I have to call him, actually call him Cheeto head. So, <laughs> diverse Democrats and Republicans have bought into this idea that it's good for the economy to deregulate, but the reality is it's often actually very bad for the economy, and it's certainly bad for workers, consumers, and the environment. And they do it in the name of the vitality of the marketplace, right? In your book somewhere, you said that we will, before it's too late, use the vitality and the magic of the marketplace to save this way of life. Or we will one day face our children and our children's children when they ask us, where were we? What were we doing on the day that freedom was lost? Sort of like blowing it up like it's, oh, what was me? But I, again, want to change that quote at the end and say, what were we doing when we lost the ability to live on this planet because we didn't regulate the industries that are polluting the earth? 
Exactly. Or since what's been in the news lately about AI, where were we when computers started taking over the world and we did nothing to regulate the AI industry? <laughs> That's a good point. It's crazy. Because I'm going to have to tell you right now, the first question I asked you was chat GPT. <laughs> Are you kidding? Oh, my gosh. I, I, I had to try it. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. Look, it works well for a lot of things, which is why people are so excited. But it's also really scary because it makes things up uh, and because the reader has no idea where this has come from. So we're talking to Naomi Oreskes, Professor Naomi Oreskes, who just finished writing a book with Mr. Conway called uh, The Big Myth. And we're getting into it here about all this stuff. You know, I'd like to move it now towards some, you know, the stuff that I, I called you first. And you said, oh, I have a new book, you know, and that is the the oil industry a little bit because a lot of this deregulation, they've benefited very highly from it. And I have a lot of questions about this. You know, just the other day, Darren Woods, who's the executive chief executive of ExxonMobil Corporation, he said that Exxon's low-carbon business has the potential to generate hundreds of billions of dollars in revenue and outperform the company's traditional oil and gas as soon as a decade from now. Uh, to me, is this an example of an industry has lied and obscured the reality of what's happening to the planet and apparently knowing what was happening to, if you read your, your wonderful book about the merchants of doubt, um, you'll, that's readily apparent. But now, are they being able to profit from the serious conditions they help perpetrate? Oh, absolutely. There's no question about it. And, you know, I think it's really important for listeners to remember exactly what you just said. This is a company that we know, that we have shown beyond any reasonable doubt, has been lying to the American people at least since the 1980s. This is a company that knew very clearly in the 1970s and 80s that their own scientists were telling them that their product, oil and gas, was going to change the climate in really serious ways. And, and in the beginning, when they first received this information from their scientists, they supported those scientists to investigate further, to learn more about the problem. Um, and to think about what could be done about it. And what they decided to do was to lie, was to set up a massive disinformation campaign, both directly through their own advertisements to consumers in prominent venues like the New York Times, but also indirectly through the financial support of a network of think tanks. And we wrote about this in Merchants of Doubt, our previous book, a network of think tanks that for 30 years has been promoting disinformation uh, about climate change and trying to confuse the American people. Uh, this is extremely well documented. It's in our book. It's in a set of articles that I've published with my uh, other colleague, Jeffrey Supran. It's been written about in the Los Angeles Times. I mean, the evidence is overwhelming. And yet this company still thinks that we're so stupid <laughs> that um, they can keep lying to us. And so now the big lie is that, oh, they're moving us into the green energy environment. We're gonna solve this problem with carbon capture and storage. And of course, the reality is they don't really have to convince all of us. They just have to convince members of Congress, many of whom are captured by huge political donations. And so we saw in the Inflation Reduction Act, even though there are many good things in that law, and it's certainly overall a step in the right direction, there are also huge subsidies for carbon capture. Carbon capture at present, I mean, maybe one day in the future it will be a part of the solution, but right now, Carbon capture is primarily a way to get more oil and gas out of the ground. And I'm going to say that again because most people do not understand this. Um, the oil and gas industry pumps carbon dioxide into the ground to flush out 
oil and gas that is basically stuck to the mineral grains uh, in the subsurface and to get more oil and gas out of the ground, which then they sell and we burn. So carbon capture as it's currently operating in the United States makes the climate problem worse. And yet they have persuaded Congress to give them huge subsidies uh, in the Inflation Reduction Act for this activity that is making climate change worse. So how they do that is an interesting magic trick, uh, but it shows how there's this continued dishonesty and misrepresentation going on even as we speak today. And no regulation. And no regulation, right. Oh, that's the other thing too, right? So these tax credits are completely unverifiable. I mean, I shouldn't say they're unverifiable, they're unverified. So companies simply have to say that they're doing this, they get these tax credits, and there's no mechanism to actually uh, verify how much carbon did they put in the ground, did it stay in the ground, how much oil and gas did they get out. So it's an upfront tax credit that costs the American taxpayer um, millions and millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars probably, um, for what would likely be no benefit in the short run. and almost certainly in the short run make the problem worse. And this is the reason I called you because I have not heard anybody talking about, some, some people have asked me the question and I wanted to put it to someone like you, is that if this is continuing, like one of the guys from Shark Tank wants to build a $46 billion oil refinery because we're going to have oil for the next 50 years, he says, and the oil companies are continuing to get investments from all the big banks and continuing to, to bring more oil and gas out of the ground and, 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 and touting gas as an alternative, <laughs> even though they're burning off half the methane that comes out as well when do we hold them accountable when do we say enough is enough i mean this is a real problem that you know the politicians don't seem to know that like a lot of us uh, that who have been environmentalists for so long that this is a a a bad end game here We're, we're we're hurtling towards some really bad things for the planet so my question is when do we hold them accountable for obstructing progress and thwarting efforts to mitigate global warming and you know do we put them on trial some Day? Do you think that could possibly happen and, and hold them f- for crimes against humanity? On some level, it is actually already happening. And, and in a way, your question, of course, answers itself because the answer, the obvious answer is now. Uh, and it is beginning to happen. So across the United States and also across the world, uh, various groups are bringing suits against the fossil fuel industry. And the one I know the most about is the one in my own, in the state I call home, Massachusetts, where the current governor, former attorney general, has brought suit against ExxonMobil for consumer fraud, for violating Massachusetts law against defrauding the consumer. And that case is going is going ahead. They're, they've moved into discovery. They expect to go to court um, probably within the next couple of years. You know, the difficulty with using the courts for redress is it's a very slow process. Um, some of these cases against the fossil fuel industry uh, were filed many years ago. There are cases here in California where I am right now uh, there have been some important cases in Europe, including an important case in the Netherlands that did say that Royal Dutch Shell is responsible uh, for its actions and, and will need to take steps to address climate change. So I think we are seeing action. And I think, you know, people are always asking me to give them good news. <laughs> it's a difficult when you work on a problem. And- I get it, too. They're always telling me I'm full of bad news. <laughs> I know nobody likes bad news and they shoot the messenger and you know the the figure from antiquity I identify most with is Cassandra. I sometimes thought I, if I ever write a memoir it would be like the Cassandra problem. I bring that up all the time. <laughs> yeah, nobody wants to hear the truth if it's bad, right? But 
On the other hand, think about getting a cancer diagnosis, right? It's bad to find out you have cancer, but it's worse not to find out, right? Because if you know it and you know what cancer you have, then you maybe can do something about it. And the good news here is that all across the world, people are doing something. And here in the United States, it's not mostly happening on the federal level, although, as I said, the IRA, the so weirdly named Inflation Reduction Act, was an important step in the right direction. But across this country on the state level, a lot is happening. Most of these lawsuits are taking place either in states or actually even smaller municipalities, like here in California, um, Imperial Beach is suing the fossil fuel industry, Chevron, ExxonMobil, and I think 30 or 40 other uh, defendants because of sea level rise, which is directly threatening the sustainability of coastal communities here in California. So it is happening and people can get involved by supporting the environmental groups that are supporting that litigation. Bill McKibben also has a new initiative that he's just launched that I think is super important because it's potentially very empowering. It's, as you just said, all of this fossil fuel development, the pipelines, the infrastructure, the drilling, is supported by banks. I mean, companies don't finance these developments on their own. They go to banks for finance. And some of the biggest banks that finance um, fossil fuel development are also consumer-facing, like Bank of America and Wells Fargo. And so Bill launched a big initiative a few months ago to ask people, if you have accounts with these banks, to start to withdraw your money. Um, and it's work, you know, I, I have to confess, I've decarbonized my retirement portfolio, but it hasn't yet decarbonized just my savings account. So I'm, I'm working on that, it's next time I to do this. Um, you know, if you have credit cards with these, cut them up. Uh, there's no bank that's perfect, but there are definitely banks that are a lot better than others. Uh, bank of the West has been trying to move in the direction of decarbonization. Some of the European banks are less offenders in this area. So you can go on the web and you can, there's lots of material about this. You can go to 350.org, find out more. And this is something that everyone can do. Um, well, I shouldn't say that. There are people in this country who have no money and that's important to acknowledge as well. But lots of us um, have at least some money and many of us have accounts or credit cards with these banks that are financing the fossil fuel industry. And that's something we can fix. And the same with our pension funds. If you have a pension or a 401k, um, you can decarbonize it. And that's actually a pretty easy thing to do. I did that a couple of years ago. It only took a couple of days. It wasn't a big deal. Um, and then, of course, other things that people have talked about. If you own a home, solar panels on your roof is an obvious thing to do uh, when it's time to buy a new car, an electric car. And, you know, there, too, this is where, again, there's so much industry disinformation Often I've been, I give talks and some will say, well, but if my electricity is coming from fossil fuels, there's no point in having an electric car. That's not true. It turns out that electric cars are so much more efficient than internal combustion engines that even if your electricity is coming from fossil fuels, it's still better to drive an electric car. Right. And most cars are actually really good cars that drive fast. And they last a long time. And get, and get this, folks, I know for a fact that like it's like some 20,000 parts in a regular auto and some 2,000 parts in an electric car. It's right. And this is one reason. Maintenance is a big deal. Right. The big companies resisted them in the beginning because a lot of auto manufacturers make their main profits not on the cars themselves, but on the parts. So electric cars have fewer parts and they wear out less quickly. So it means you need a whole new business model. And again, that's where governments come in with appropriate subsidies to support the transition. Right. And what we desperately need in this country is for the state and federal governments to work together to build a big, effective infrastructure of charging stations. <laughs> 
Because, uh, like you said, we need the government to step in because it's not going fast enough, in my opinion. You know, we need right. some instigation right. here because we one thing we need is speed and scale if we're going to tackle this because there is a real problem. Exactly. And that's one of the things we talk about in the book as well, that if you leave things to the private sector, a lot of times things do happen. But if you need something to happen quickly... Uh, if there's a time frame, if there's a time limit, that's where you really need the government. And of course, the place we saw that most obviously in U.S. history was during World War II. Uh, the U.S. desperately needed to mobilize to produce more trucks, more tanks, more aircraft. The private sector didn't do that on its own. It was the federal government that mobilized the industrial capacity of the United States. Um, and that almost all historians agreed that's what enabled us to win World War II. Right. You know, what do you think about the idea that, you know, we're sort of in a, uh, working on a, a faulty model here. The capitalism we have right now is all about growth and the, the engines of the economy and even the way you measure them, GDP and all these other things that say, oh, we just got a good report that we're consuming more, we're expanding more, we're extracting more. And but we have a planet that has finite resources. How, how, how do you have unlimited growth in all these models, but at the same time, you can't, you don't have a planet that can cooperate. <laughs> well, exactly. And this is one of the really big conceptual problems that, you know, Eric Conway and I don't pretend to answer, but we really need smart young people to work on. So as you say, our whole economic model is built on the, on the notion of growth. And, you know, growth is good when, you know, you're a baby or a child and you're growing. Uh, but then at a certain point, growth can become bad, right? I mean, once we reach adulthood, you know, growth is putting on weight or growth is, you know, cancer, right? So there's good growth and there's bad growth, but our economic models don't really recognize that. They treat all growth as good. Um, and as many people have said, Al Gore wrote about this decades ago, the way we measure economic productivity through GDP, if I cut down a forest, that wood that is produced is counted as part of the GDP. It's counted as a good thing that contributes to the growth of the economy. But the loss, the loss of the forest, the loss of the biodiversity, the loss of a beautiful place to go for a walk in the woods and feel better, that's not counted anywhere in our accounting systems. And the same with pollution, right? If I have a factory that makes shoes, those shoes contribute positively to the GDP, but, if I, but the air pollution or the water pollution or the workplace injury, that doesn't show up. So we desperately need creative people to figure out better ways of accounting the true, what we like to call the true costs of capitalism. And, and it's really important because lots of people in business have, sh have shown that if you don't measure it, then people ignore it, right? Your workers will work to the metrics that you pose. So if companies would begin to have metrics to measure these costs, to measure the damage, that could really shift the way businesses think. And so then again, it gets us back to governance. Maybe we need some kind of statute to say, um, you have to you have to account for the damage as well as the gains. Right. That's I have a brother who's he's in the financial industry and he says the same thing. It, it seems to him that we need a, a metric that is true cost. You you make plastic bottles, but the true cost is not built into the fact that they have they pollute the ocean or you have to clean them up or any other kind of. I mean, you can go on and on, but there's no true cost of manufacturing, for instance. Exactly. And actually, it's so funny you say it because we actually thought about trying to have a chapter called True Cost Capitalism. And we, we couldn't figure it out to our satisfaction. We figured if we wrote a bad last chapter with a bunch of jumbled ideas, 
people just seize on that. So what we ended up with is the penultimate chapter of the book um, is called the high cost of the free market. So where we lay out this problem about all these costs that don't get accounted for, um, but we don't we don't try to give the solution because we didn't figure it out. But maybe that's the next book. Albert Edwards, the economist, just said that he thinks that there's a phenomenon called greedflation. And the uh, corporations, particularly in developed economies, are now are r- raising the cost of things just because they can. And there's no, again, going back to regulation uh, going on with uh, prices. Well, absolutely. We've definitely seen that. I mean, lots of charts have come out in recent months that show staggering rise of profits, corporate profits in the last few years, while so many Americans and others around the globe were suffering during the pandemic. And it's clear that one of the things that happened was there were genuine supply chain issues. Those constrictions in supply in the face of high demand did lead to price increases. But then it's clear a bunch of companies used that as an excuse to continue raising prices um, way beyond what the supply chain issues warranted and, and after even some of the supply chain issues uh, were resolved. So it's clear that there's been a lot of profiteering uh, that happened during the pandemic, similar to war profiteering. And again, that gets us back to this question of taxation. I mean, it's a fairly easy thing to do to have a windfall profits tax. The legality of that is well established. We've had it in the past, and I think we should have it again now. And especially, we see the way the pro- fossil fuel industry has profiteered off the war in Ukraine. Uh, the price of oil and gas in the United States has skyrocketed, even though most American oil and gas it doesn't come from Russia. Um, our supply chains here in the United States were not mostly very affected by by this war. But they've used an excuse, and you probably read, um, fossil fuel industry has made record profits this year, and there's no reason to be taxed and recycled into a clean energy fund or a clean development or a clean development fund. Mm-hmm. You're right. One final question. I'll let you go. Uh, Ronald Reagan, you say, was wrong. Our most consequential problems have risen not because of too much government, but because of too little. So the government is not the solution to all our problems, but it is a solution to many of our biggest ones. That's the final line of your book. Is there something that you're going to leave us with? Yeah, well, like you said, I mean, we started this work working on climate change. That's how Eric Conway and I came to this problem. We didn't want the book to be about climate change because we wanted to step back from the immediacy of the climate crisis to look at this larger history of how we got so stuck. But at the end of the day, we do come back to climate change because as you just said, this is a true existential crisis. People around the globe are already being killed. People are losing their homes in wildfires and floods. Real damage is already taking place and it's going to get a whole lot worse if we don't do something very, very soon. And it's not a problem that people can solve on individuals. There's a lot we can do. I don't want to say that individual action is meaningless because it's not, but fundamentally there are big structural problems and those kinds of structural problems, the way we run our economy, the way we run our accounting, the way we invest, um, the way we do or don't charge people for damages, those problems have to be addressed structurally and that's where you need governance. Professor Naomi Oreskes, thank you for joining me. Her book is called The Big Myth. It's out now, and it's a a good read, especially if you're interested in all these uh, aspects of this amazing history and problem that we have. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. It's been fun speaking with you. You've been listening to Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher. 